war to extermination. Fight cell by cell through bodies and mind screens of the earth. Souls rotten from the orgasm drug, flesh shuddering from the ovens. Prisoners of the earth, come out. Storm the studio. Burnt metal smell of interplanetary war in the raw noon streets, swept by screaming glass blizzards of enemy flak. Shift linguals, free doorways, cut word lines, photo falling, word falling, breakthrough in gray room. Towers, open fire. Citizen, you are listening to WCBN-FM in Ann Arbor. Guilt, blast, pound, stab, strap, kill. Pilot K-9, you are cut off. Back. Return to base immediately. Ride music beam back to base. Stay out of that time, Flack. All pilots, ride pan pipes back to base. Well, uh, it's about 6.30 p.m., and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. Indeed, you are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, kind of an interesting week coming up here. It seems like Obama's going to make a, shall we say, a full court press effort to sell uh, the American people some sort of health care reform, and how that works itself out remains to be seen, but obviously. At the end of the day, this this turns out to be kind of uh, pushing up against a brick wall. <laughs> Americans are reluctant to change, and of course the propaganda skeptics and critics are out there, and it will be a diff- difficult sell indeed. But I think that uh, at least Obama, in terms of vision, has the correct approach in terms of reform, though doesn't go quite far enough in my book. But obviously the single-payer concept uh, is not upon us yet. That may eventually become a necessity um, due to the the issue of competitiveness. It's interesting that uh, we're having a uh, a sort of a big-wig summit down in uh, downtown Detroit this weekend about competitiveness with uh, industry uh, talking about the problems of competitiveness, and of course, that America's been slipping in this, and Jim Dwyer's just joined me here so we can briefly talk about the Red Wings and Iran as well. But the competitive edge, just to finish up this idea, is obviously slipping. Uh, This has been reported extensively over uh, the last decade. Uh, Part of this is uh, connected to um, our educational system, but there are, of course, other problems, including health care costs, which I'm not sure if the industrial bigwigs in Detroit are going to deal with that, but they should, because that's certainly been one of the problems that the so-called big three have had in recent years. But it's interesting that a report by the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation found that the United States ranked sixth among, among 40 countries and regions based on 16 indicators of innovation and competitiveness. These included venture capital, investment, scientific research, spending on research, and educational achievement. That's sort of the broad uh, perspective. Um, 
the World Economic Forum, and I'm quoting here from an article uh, in uh, the New York Times business section by Steve Lohr from the 25th of February uh, this past year, several months ago. The World Economic Forum uh, made a report recently that uh, said that uh, the United States ranked first, but it noted that the forum's report is based on opinion surveys. And uh, part of the problem with the competitiveness issue is that America ranked sixth in venture capital, Sweden was first, fifth in corporate research and development, Japanese, uh, the J Japanese economy led, and fourth in science and technology researchers, and once again, Sweden was first. So you can see that some of the problems with competitiveness in America are the inability to think futuristically. There's too many debates we're having politically about the past, um, the 60s, abortion, uh, gay marriage, um, and a lot of these culture wars, and we're not focusing enough on what it really takes to get it done. And it's obvious with the global economic downturn, and it was interesting, there was an international report yesterday that said that uh, 250 million people are going to fall into poverty globally because of the economic downturn uh, that's occurring. And we're seeing this, uh, these problems continuing here in the United States with rising joblessness, rising uh, credit card defaults, rising foreclosures, et cetera, et cetera. So America's recovery is still a long way off, but uh, futuristic thinking uh, needs to start occurring, and I think that this concept of green energy is a good, good start. And even a guy as inarticulate as Bill Ford, and I like Bill Ford. He's the uh, family scion of the of the of the car company. Uh, noted that the United States needs to come up with a comprehensive industrial slash energy policy, because it's interesting. Over the past 25 years, the percentage of manufacturing jobs in America has declined by 50 percent. That's scary because in previous quote recoveries. The recovery, the economic recovery, usually occurs in the manufacturing sector and in the housing sector. And these are both, uh, shall we say, industrial components of the economy that are struggling. Don't be uh, confused, by the way, by a report last week that said that retail sales went up slightly in May. That actually is just consumers spending more on gasoline which means they have less money to spend on other things. And, and uh, we've seen oil prices go uh, go up considerably in the last several much, uh, months, which has sort of corresponded with an increase in the so-called Dow and the S&P, uh, because people, once again, are speculating on rising energy prices as a premise of economic recovery. Well, I say that the things are indeed, quote, less bad, but they're still bad. Indeed, and it'll be a little bit uh, of less bad for uh, for the lot of us. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, no matter how you slice it. Um, just saw an interesting bumper sticker um, in town last week while in traffic, very relevant to what you just said about the downturn leading to the opportunity for new thinking that represents the sort of ossified, really almost mentally diseased uh, old thinking uh, in such a startling way uh, that it was unexpected to me. Uh, anyway, this uh, car had a bumper sticker which read, Green is the new red. And the G 
in green, which of course was written in green ink, was a hammer and sickle. Mm-hmm. And of course, the implications are that this uh, driver of this vehicle has John Birch Society outlooks that there's a, a menace afoot, a menace that is anti-American and uh, counter to everything that Americans hold sacred, and it is a green ideology, a green way of looking at the world, um, alternative energy. Yeah. Uh, new ways of devising technologies to service needs for modern people. Um, all the wonderful, positive, and uh, numerous good things uh, attributed with what most Americans would see as what is meant by the term green, go green. Uh, this individual was sort of clawing and dragging uh, back to the John Birch Society past of, well... It, there must be something wrong with such an outlook because it goes against everything that America is. Yeah. I but mean, everything that America is has ground to a halt. Did he have a drill baby drill uh, bumper <laughs> sure sticker next to He probably to it? had that tattooed on his thigh. Uh, I'm not sure where he's coming from there uh, because they're it's not even pretty out there. remotely connected. Not um, at all. The whole purpose of, quote, going green is to reduce our dependence on foreign oil, for instance. What could be more American? <laughs> to clean up the environment. Wow, what a novel idea. Um, yeah, this is somebody that... Uh, no thinking involved. This is just a knee-jerk sort of a reaction, clearly. That must have been the Neanderthal <laughs> bumper well, sticker it, atta it's attached a to a guy's uh, It's a reminder behind. that, uh, yeah... <laughs> uh, that, you know, it's part of what we could say is the the bigger problem of the Republican Party, which I think it's good for America that the Republican Party has such big problems, um, that uh, there's just utter confusion. I mean, the fact that Barry Goldwater basically died uh, a moderate mm -hmm. says a lot about where the right wing in this country has gone. Yeah, and I think that a recent survey demonstrates what disarray they really are in when, when no opinion of leadership of the party is 52%. Who's the leader? No one knows. Even uh, another startling revelation from the, the recent polling regarding the Republicans, because they had a little shindig down in Washington that had all sorts of headlines because of Miss Moose. Uh, Sarah Palin was uh, back well, in the news with... Yeah, the David Letterman flap, which Yeah, says. yeah, the David Letterman <laughs> flap. He's a comedian, not a politician. That's He's correct. got nothing to do with politics for the most part he's irreverent he insults everybody whatever um no sense of humor no guts no glory whatever <laughs> um yeah and, and the other startling thing I, I found from the from the survey was that even a third of the republican party disapproves of the party <laughs> which gives you an idea that uh t to paraphrase mo udall uh, speaking of the Democrats back in the 70s, that they remind him of a firing squad that stands in a circle, <laughs> which I think is a <coughs> where they're at. Yeah. <clears throat> and when there's no oh. discernible leader <clears throat> and when the leaders are sort of still identified as John McCain, Newt Gingrich, Sarah Dick, Palin Dick and Cheney. Rush Limbaugh with 2 percent advocating Dick Cheney. <laughs> Uh, you're in trouble. And, of course, you know, I, I think that the surprising thing from the poll in my book was that, of course, none of the rising stars uh, like Bobby Jindal, who uh, fell flat on his face on national television uh, many months ago. Uh, oh boy, that was that was painful. 
<laughs> it's like watching bad stand-up comedy where the oh sweat's just rolling down the back. Oh, dude. <laughs> Bring the cane out from behind the curtain. <laughs> That's what they needed. That was a this disaster. The show is over. That was a disaster. That almost resembled a Monty Python skit. <laughs> Only he was dead serious. Well, uh, since you're here, I guess we'll just briefly comment on the Red Wings uh, defeat. Uh, nothing to be ashamed of. I think it was just a bad break. We played our worst game in Game 7. I think that uh, injuries might have caught up with us, and probably the rescheduling of the of the finals themselves, having the back-to-back -back night, that probably hurt the Wings a little bit. Yeah, even though they won those games, I think there was an exhaustion factor that uh, once the uh, tournament's over, of course, coaches will admit to the yeah. degree and extent of injuries. And it's really remarkable. People often complain about the uh, wages that professional athletes make. Uh, I always remind them that the, they earn the wages that the market bears, that people are willing to pay, and uh, they're entertainers, essentially. Yeah. And so sports is on the one level fun, it's fascinating, vicarious experiences, but it's also entertainment, in addition to, of course, being a business. But from the personal uh, position of the athletes, um, it's unfortunate to hear people kind of whine and moan after the fact uh, that, oh, there wasn't enough effort or there was, you know, Osgood let in a bad goal or something like that. I think probably the Wings did play their worst game of the series in Game 7. Uh, they were outshot. They were outchanced. A uh, number of things just weren't quite clicking, and clearly exhaustion's a factor. But uh, professional athletes play through injuries that would put me out for weeks. Yeah. And when you find out the degree of Nick Lidstrom's injury, the fact that he came back at all is remarkable. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I played high school sports, and I remembered my senior year in high school in basketball. We lost a number of just incredibly close games, a bucket, a point, you know, a foul one, shot. One bounce here. And our coach used to always say, look, if you lose by one point, there's a thousand ways you could have won the game, and there's a thousand ways that you lost the game. You know, nobody can predict Stewart is going to make a, a horrible cough-up early in the game in Game 7. Uh, that was uh, certainly a, a big blunder. But the Wings have nothing to be ashamed of, and since the mainstream media will not comment on this, I will. Uh, Sidney Crosby is no champ in my book, and I'm not going to talk about the shaking hands nonsense. That's trivial. Uh, let's remember that he chopped Zetterberg in Game 5 when we had a big lead. Zetterberg never looked the same to me after that. So Zetterberg was another player playing hurt. He was hurt deliberately by a, quote, star of the league. And the mainstream media made no comment about that dirty play, but it was a dirty play. He should have been suspended. And I hate to say it, I think there was a little bit of pro-Pittsburgh officiating as well as commentary on the networks because I, you know, bopped back and forth. Oddly, I thought that the... Uh, NBC was actually more obj objective than CBC. Yeah. But I think I, that's because Crosby that. is the Canadian star. They're pinning a lot of their future, i.e. Olympic medals, right. on Crosby. Scotty Bowman had Joey Co Koser on the team for a reason. <laughs> if you were going to take cheap shots against Iserman and Fedorov and Larianov, you were going to pay at some point, and the Wings did not retaliate against Crosby. 
but they certainly could have. And it's ironic that he hurt himself in Game in Seven, game seven right. on another dirty attempt where to you clip fronts and yeah. the the mule just said, "Get off my back, you punk!" And he just sort of you know <laughs> swung him back, aside, yeah. and he got banged into the boards. Oh well, um, but no champ in my books. Uh, you know, I, I thought that. Oddly well, enough, it was unsung heroes for Pittsburgh that got the job done. Indeed. And uh, on that note, uh, I'll uh, tag team on the other big star from Pittsburgh. I was disappointed that uh, Evgeny Malkin won the uh, Most Valuable Player Award. I thought their goalie probably deserved that. Um, he made good recoveries from bad games. Mm -hmm. uh, he played very, very well in uh, Game 6 and 7. I think he was the... The big deciding factor because the Wings did get uh, not as many chances on goal as uh, Pittsburgh, but quality chances, and and uh, the Pittsburgh goalie flurry was was the difference there. I, I would have seen uh, him as the MVP uh, with the result of a Pittsburgh win. Malkin's a kind of a goony player who took a number of bad penalties, who put his team in trouble uh, on a number of occasions, uh, taking bad penalties, and that's not most valuable player uh, behavior. Yeah, I think they gave it to him for his cumulative body of work. He scored a lot of goals in throughout words, the playoffs. He had a lot of big yeah. plays in some of the earlier series. The Wings didn't shut him down, but they certainly curtailed his output. And I think that sometimes they give the MVP to the the 16 games involved, not the the final yeah. itself. Now, that's just the way it works. Well, one last uh, comment on that is that uh, although uh, the Wings did not make it to a fifth uh, Stanley Cup uh, championship in we'll call the the modern era, the recent era, um, since their days, the glory days of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, they've still been to the finals six times yeah. in the last 14 years. That's impressive. And the uh, you know record books are compiled years and years from now. The, the pain of the loss will sort of diminish over time. But uh, uh, that's a pretty remarkable accomplishment. And uh, even though they didn't win, I still think, c considering especially that a handful of guys were on all six of those uh, teams. Yeah, uh, th and that's a dynasty. Sure, and and you know even a great player like Magic Johnson, you know, just to use him as a Michigan example, since he's a, a local yokel, uh, good guy. Everybody loves Magic, uh, even if you weren't a Lakers fan. Uh, he lost five finals, so yeah. great players lose in the finals, and pucks take funny bounces. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, we lost a couple of. Two to one games where oh Samuelson the puck, hits the post in game six yeah or you know the post in in, in game seven you know or the breakaway that Cleary normally would hit but he didn't hit um, you know there's a thousand ways we could have won it and the puck squirted out a couple of times at the point led to some big plays by uh, well, Stall Stall was a was a guy that made a couple of huge plays he was big to help them, Pittsburgh yeah. uh, mightily in the in the final couple of games. The Wings have nothing to be ashamed of. They're still the class of the NHL. The Pittsburgh Penguins are a young rising team. It also shows, for instance, that, that the late season trades can sometimes be decisive. Mm -hmm. The Wings were unable to make moves for a variety of reasons. Uh, salary issues or, you know, you're not going to deal young players that... Right. Up and coming, and they've shown that they've got a lot of good players in the wings and they, uh, coming and, up. And they, yeah. they came to the main. I mean, I think that Erickson is is just this guy's going to be <laughs> could be a top four defenseman next He's year. He's going to be one of the best yeah. players in the NHL. I think within three years, he he proved it this year. He played spectacularly in my book throughout the whole series. 
uh, all As the did series. Helm. And Helm was wonderful. And I was, you know, kind of mystified what happened to Helm in Game 7. It didn't seem like he was out there much. Um, could have been maybe some more juggling of the lines, you know, mix Dadzook up, get him back with Hosa, because mm. there were a couple guys seemed to be struggling, so maybe mix it up a little bit. But we can't criticize Mike Badcott. We can't criticize the organization. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And, hey, we'll be back next year. We're going to be one of the top teams again, mark my words, regardless of whether we re-sign Hosa. Uh, Ken Holland has shown he'll make the necessary moves to get the players in place uh, so that the Red Wings system can uh, prevail. And uh, injuries are part of the game. Yeah. You know, they played a factor in some of these NBA uh, semifinal games uh, involving key players, bench players. So, Well, one one last thing, too, is that, and this is something that uh, Kirk Malpe commented on at one point, a couple points actually through the – a lot of uh, press uh, attention after every game. That gets a little – that's another thing that athletes have to deal with and how they earn their high wages in addition to all the physical injuries and, and you know, lots of travel away from family and constant, you know, microphones in your faces after games and stuff. Um, the comments about, oh, it would be great for Michigan, you know, with the economic slump to have a sort of a – a feel-good sensation of uh, of a Stanley Cup uh, championship, uh, but even there, there's nothing to be ashamed of because think of all the guys who sell beer and hot dogs and stuff who had work well into June, whereas yeah. most of the teams in the league were done months ago. So yeah, it, it well a it lot helped, of a lot of economic uh, help the economy. Good, no doubt about it. And uh, congratulations to the Wings for winning another Western Conference championship. There's nothing to be ashamed about what happened. It's disappointing, but it's only a game. It's a game. Yeah. Well, uh, unfortunately, the same can't be said about the Iranian elections. No, no. I th- not I think, a game. I think what's fascinating about this is that, you know, I'm not going to make bold predictions here, but I think that the, you know, revolutions get stale at a certain point, and we could be seeing the beginning of the end of this sort of. Uh, Iranian revolution. There could be a new phase of politics entering into Iran because of the credibility of this uh, election. Obviously, the regime, you know, is is headed by Ayatollah Khamenei, but um, the supreme leader, the supreme leader, the mysterious Ayatollah behind the scenes who, uh, you know, took over for Ayatollah Khamenei. But uh, I think that there's obviously big problems that the Iranian government has with this election. I think there's credibility about the vote count. I think that people have pointed out that, you know, these these other candidates all lost their hometowns. That doesn't seem right. Um, there are elites within the the so-called leadership uh, sort of milieu of Iran that are that are uh, contesting the outcome, and uh, it will be very interesting to to watch over the next couple of weeks because of the demographics issue, because of the economic realities. And because I'm any jot, it's just such a bozo. Um, what will happen? And uh, the quote results are being looked at. I don't know what that means, but uh, well, it represents something of a turnaround because the initial response from the uh, supreme leader Ayatollah Khamenei was that um, hooray! Uh, he announced it a, a divine assessment, quote unquote. Um, but and now. No doubt because of the pressure and the turmoil and the chaos, he's ordering a probe over the vote. Where that probe will lead, of course, is where nobody knows. But I found interesting looking back at some 
articles uh, preceding the election that sort of anticipated what the trends appeared to be at that point. And as of uh, Wednesday, June 10th, uh, Anna Fifield, writing in the Financial Times, wrote, Analysts estimate that Mr. Ahmadinejad has a core base of 10 to 12 million voters meaning low turnout will help him secure the 51% majority needed to win outright in Friday's first round. The Mousavi camp hopes a higher turnout amongst Iran's 46 million registered voters will reduce Ahmadinejad's share. Well, in fact, the turnouts were very high, record yeah, highs. Yeah, they, they, they extended the hours of the election on election day, which indicates to me that there are problems with the voter regularity. This is yeah. reminiscent of Ohio, reminiscent of very Florida so. here in the United States. And it's fascinating because the United States is in the sort of bizarre position where it really can't say too much about voting irregularities, nor should it. <laughs> Indeed. This is an example of where the United States should just play it cool, lay back, let events transpire. This is not a time for meddling or intervention uh, because it's only going to make things worse. And we also here in the United States need to, to uh, avoid this confusion that the mass media is trying to parlay onto the public about the issue of, of Iran's nuclear weapon facility. Well, John Kerry's program. comments over the uh, weekend are, if, if an Ahmadinejad victory is guaranteed by the Supreme Leader or whatever they're going to call a recount, then... Here, politically, uh, Kerry's position becomes untenable, um, which is unfortunate because I think it's a sane response. Uh, I don't think there's much of a problem with Kerry's suggestion that, well, all countries have this right as long as they can guarantee that they're not manufacturing weapons. Yeah, and I think that it's very important for Americans to understand that, that Iran is not in a position at the moment for a nuclear weapon. This is all hyperbole. This has been confirmed yeah. by the IAEA. I, uh, several years ago, read a very interesting uh, report by a British scientist named Norman Dombey that pointed out that to build a nuclear weapon, you need what is known as highly enriched uranium. Now, uh, recently, and I'm just going to point out two uh, things that suggest that this is not the case, that Iran does not have uh, this material. They have, quote, enough material for a bomb. And they know how to do enrichment, according to a uh, top nuclear physicist named Richard L. Garwin. Whether they know how to design a bomb, well, that's another matter. Now, the IAEA report that came out last November detailing Iran's progress, and I'm quoting from uh, William J. Broad and David Sanger's uh, article on the 20th of uh, November of 2008, and I'll quote this, says, The figures detailing Iran's progress were contained in a routine update on Wednesday from the IAEA, which has been conducting inspections at the country's main nuclear plant at uh, Natanz. The report concluded that as of early this month, Iran had made 630 kilograms, or about 1,390 pounds, of low-enriched uranium. That is not highly-enriched uranium. Quoting from a footnote from an article that appeared in the uh, New York Review of Books, February 12, 2009, an article that was written shortly before the Obama uh, administration took over, and an article uh, written by Bill Lures, Thomas Pickering, and Jim Walsh, in which they talk specifically about, quote, how to deal with Iran, 
because they argue a, uh, that talks need to commence, that the Bush administration's policies were a failure, and that the issues that Obama was confronting were nuclear proliferation, the war in Iraq, and the war in Afghanistan. I'm going to quote from the footnote here regarding the uh, so-called uh, nuclear weapon issue, because we hear a lot of hyperbole in the American media about this. Setting aside recent misleading reports that Iran already has enough nuclear fuel to build a weapon, the reality is that Tehran now has 5,000 centrifuges for enriching uranium and is steadily moving towards achieving that cap capability. The footnote notes, news reports and some commentators have recently claimed that Iran has enough material for a nuclear weapon. These reports refer to Iran's stock of low-enriched uranium. This is a misleading claim. To begin with, one cannot make a weapon with low-enriched uranium. A nuclear weapon requires highly enriched uranium or plutonium, and Iran possesses neither. In theory, Iran could take its uh, stock of low-enriched uranium and enrich it to a grade required for making bombs, but it's low-enriched uranium and is currently under surveillance by the IAEA. Diverting this material for military purposes would be discovered by the IAEA. Detection of diversion is the IAEA's technological strong suit. Iran's choices, therefore, are to cheat and get caught or to kick out the inspectors. Either action would represent an extreme departure from Iranian strategy to date and in any case would likely precipitate military action by Israel. These are the experts. These are the people that know what's going on. Norman Dombey and the guys that I just quoted from, Bill Lures, Thomas Pickering, and Jim Walsh. Uh, it's an interesting article because it goes into the details about how the United States' uh, goals in the Middle East uh, coincide with Iran's in some respects, uh, specifically regarding more than a few, indeed. Re regarding the Taliban. So what they're advocating in this article overall is a fundamental uh, dialogue. Get it going. And even um, this is part, ironically, of the Iraq study group that uh, George Bush appointed uh, under the uh, chairmanship of Lee Hamilton and James Baker back uh, when they were examining problems with the Iraq war and what was going wrong. So uh, it's important to realize that this idea that there's a, there's a bomb out there and that it's eminent and all this stuff is, is pure nonsense. This is under... Monitoring. This is not to say that Iran does not maybe think down the road that there should be such a bomb, but they're not there yet. Right. And, well, actually, uh, <laughs> there are bombs in the area, but uh, they're not in Iran. They're in India, Pakistan, and Israel. And if you want to, uh, you know, further prevent Iran from desiring a weapon, although clearly, as you demonstrate there with those... Uh, uh, pieces of information that uh, it's likely that Iran would be caught if they were trying to do that, uh, then you need to denuclearize the entire region and get these, you know, three or four mentioned countries to dismantle their nuclear arsenals. Yeah, and I think that the premise that Iran is going to fire a missile at Europe is just, or Israel, is ludicrous. Uh, Iran is, is struggling with, with, with economic problems of their own. In fact, this was one of the reasons why a lot of these election experts claim that the, the youth vote overwhelmingly went against him in Abinijad, and he might not have won this election, that this might have been a stolen election, quote-unquote, 
and we'll see what happens. Maybe uh, Diebold has a presence there as well. well. We may not know that for a couple of days. Uh, you are listening to WCBN-FM in Ann Arbor. We've run over a little bit. Yazoo City Calling is uh, en route. So it'll be interesting to see how these protests um, emanate themselves over the next couple of days and how the, the regime of Iran uh, deals with it, because 